From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Treasury Department and General Services Administration are the homes of the two newest quality service management offices. Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent says Treasury will offer shared services for financial management, GSA for civilian HR services. GSA services will include compensation management, work schedule, and leave management. The Navy has a new acting undersecretary. Greg Slavonic will add those responsibilities to his role as Assistant Secretary for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. USNI News reports Slavonic's been performing the duties of the undersecretary since late April. He's been Assistant Secretary since June 2018. Former Federal Deputy Chief Information Officer Margie Graves will become the Vice Chair of the Industry Advisory Council next month. FCW reports the selection puts Graves on track to become IAC Chair in July 2021. Graves stepped down as Deputy CIO in December. A new bill in the House could allow a pathway to a visa for non-citizen researchers and technologists working to protect national security. It's part of a larger effort to build and retain a national security workforce. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. Roger, welcome back. It's good to see you again. What's in this bill and what kinds of people would it deliver for the national security community? Thanks for having me on, Francis. And this bill offered by Congressman Langevin and Stefanik really looks to build out what's called the National Security Innovation-Based Workforce. There have been other measures trying to do this, but fundamentally it's about trying to get young people who have expertise in STEM to enter the national security workforce. We do it, this bill does it, uh, by incentivizing them through paying for their undergraduate education and in return, they agree to work in the national security innovation base, either in the U.S. government. And what's unique about this particular proposal, it would also allow them to work in industry that's supportive of the national security innovation base. Is there a difference between the type of talent that's needed specifically in the NATSEC innovation base and the broader STEM talent that everybody in the country is trying to attract as a, as a whole? I think the fundamental that you get in a computer science degree or software engineering degree really doesn't make uh, a big distinction between whether you enter the national security workforce or you'll work for a tech company. The question is what you do when you enter the workforce. Are you going to be working on updating that app that our children are captivated by because their ears turn into dog ears? Or are you going to be working on something that's really going to impact national security for the future in the world of AI or quantum computing. Is the main difference, though, the potential money that's involved? Because there's a lot of money in apps that, that put dog ears on you, and, and there's fast money in that. Those companies grow very quickly and IPO very quickly and IPO very profitably. That doesn't always happen in the, the defense innovation space because of the, the germination time that it takes. Is that the major difference here? Is the financial drivers and the timelines that exist, Roger? Yeah, you put your finger on it. I think for a young person coming out of school, the opportunity to make you know six figures uh, 
right away uh, an exciting new company is really a draw. But what we learned in the Reagan Institute task force on the national innovation base is that young people also love the mission. They want the opportunity to work on something consequential. So this is a nudge, you know, just nudging them along uh, to try to give them a pathway. Fundamentally, what we learned is that oftentimes these young people don't see a path. They are not necessarily recruited. They don't know how they can work on projects relevant to national security. And when they have that opportunity, when they have that exposure, particularly because of all the work the Department of Defense and the U.S. government at large is doing to try to integrate these new technologies, there's great opportunity. And I think uh, this project and more broadly the work in the defense build will make it more appealing job opportunity. This National Security Innovation Base visa is uh, one of the recommendations of that task force that you just mentioned. We've talked about those recommendations on this program before, Roger. Are there a couple of those that you're starting to see tee themselves up, either other bills that are in the pipeline, items in either the House or Senate marks of NDAA or others where you're starting to see some traction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the legislation by Stefanik and Langevin trying to take advantage of those uh, who are already in this country studying STEM and giving them the opportunity to stay here and work. So the brain drain works to our advantage, opposed to losing good people is one example. But if you look at the Senate bill, there's an entirely new section of the Senate NDAA focus on the national innovation base, getting at some of the issues we discussed, as well as organizing and building on the things the Department of Defense has already done to try to make sure that those innovative companies, the smaller companies that need an opportunity are given a, a chance so that they can survive uh, and not just get, you know, the, the small little contract, but something to give and that's substantial, really they, they can be invested in and grow and demonstrate to their investors uh, that there's opportunity here. So both on the workforce side, uh, both on, on, on the visa side, uh, as well as really just the nuts and bolts of the Department of Defense acquisition system works, Doing, there's a lot of pieces in here that are recognizing that we need to bring these new technologies in. They need to be integrated into our weapon systems and how the Department of Defense works. Are there recommendations that you've made, that your task force made, that you think could make a big difference quickly that you haven't seen as much traction on as you'd like, Roger? Yeah, so uh, I'll highlight two, Francis. The, the first is fundamentally the entire U.S. government needs to be seized by the technologies that reside out in the commercial community that the Department of Defense cannot own and does not have the expertise, but relies on. And so we recommended uh, essentially a NASA innovation-based uh, committee um, in the interagency that would make sure that the U.S. government can put its finger on and understand where it needs to invest in, what the vulnerabilities are to NASA innovation-based and what we need to do to strengthen it. Uh, that's one recommendation we think might be taken up. A second is that what makes the United States really a, kind of in the best position to win is competition with China. This is true not just in the security realm, but the economic and political realm as well, is our alliance system. The fact that, you know, the United States has about 22, 23% of the world GDP. Uh, China is, is knocking on 20%. That's pretty tight. But if you bring in U.S. allies into that equation, is nearly 70% of the world GDP. Now, that is our competitive advantage. The question is, are we working with allies and friends to ensure that we are developing these innovative technologies together and integrating them uh, in our security apparatus? That's another recommendation, this partnership for innovation that comes in our report 
which we think is critical uh, to put the United States in the best position to prevail in the competition with China. Roger Zakheim, thanks as always. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Up next, cutting the fraud out of emergency funding. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how technology can stop the government from paying too much to the wrong people. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The Pandemic Response Accountability Committee will oversee more than $2 trillion in spending from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. Preventing waste, fraud and abuse on that scale could prove to be a tremendous challenge. Gary Schiffman is CEO of Giant Oak. Gary, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What, are we learned, what have we learned in the past about pushing big amounts of money out the door and preventing waste, fraud and abuse that could apply to what's happening with the CARES Act? Yeah, Francis, uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. What we've learned in the past is that when you push large amounts of money out the door very quickly, you get a spike in fraud. Uh, during Hurricane Katrina, we put uh, over $6 billion uh, out, and uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we see that at least 16% of that money was wasted. 16% of over $2 trillion would be an absolute disaster <clears throat> if we don't do a better job today than we did during Hurricane Katrina. A lot of the folks that I talk to about waste, fraud, and abuse across the government say 2% would be an absolute success story. 2% of 2 billion, I figured out at 40, or of 2 trillion, I figured is $40 billion. $40 billion of waste, fraud, and abuse is a tremendous success story. It boggles the mind. What, what, how do we wrap our arms around accepting that in the first place, Gary? Yeah, we shouldn't, Francis. So during the, um, during the, the government uh, 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 aid and stimulus following the 2008-2008 uh, um, uh, Great Recession, the, the misspent money was probably 0.2%. And I think that's the right standard. The difference is, is when we put the money out in 08-09, we took our time. That money was spent over the course of two years. And so we screened people ahead of time. And that's really the key that I want, I want to emphasize. It's screening ahead of time and not audit at the back end that's going to make the difference. I fear today we think we're going to prevent and deter fraud in the PPP program through the threat of audit two, three years from now, you're going to get audited. That's not going to work. We're going to get massive fraud if it's only audit. We have to do screening at the Small Business Administration. We have to do screening at the banks, and you have to do the screening up front. And that's how the, the lesson learned of comparing different programs of the past is screening up front is the way to do this. What's available now to do that that maybe wasn't available in 2008, 2009, wasn't available during TARP and, yeah. and during Katrina and Rita? Yeah, it's, uh, it's technology. We're, we're in a totally different world of technology. We don't have two years to get the PPP money out today, but we have technology that we didn't have available, which would allow us to do the screening in highly compressed times. We're, we're very fortunate to be able to do that. Um, screening up front is a technology, is a, is a problem begging for technology. It's about looking at patterns of behavior of people applying for loans and identifying the patterns of behavior associated with risk and doing it up front and screening up front. 
What's the what's the kind of the the cultural issue behind this? You've written about uh, behavioral science and applying behavioral science in an artificial intelligence uh, context. How do those two things intersect together, Gary? Yeah. So it, uh, humans are um, we behave in patterns and and uh, we behave in more predictable ways than we like to think. And so people who commit fraud tend to be people who have committed fraud in the past. People who don't tend to be people who, who don't. So during times like this, when there's gonna be a spike, what you wanna do is you wanna take advantage of the, the latest in behavioral science and machine learning and bring it into the screening process. And we have the ability to do that um, and it's and I just want to emphasize it's it's behavioral. So it's not um, it's it's not traits such as uh, labels. It's not rich. It's not poor. It's people who commit crimes are people who commit crimes, and most people don't commit crimes. So we have to get this money out the door. We have to get it out quickly because there's real need. So I just want to emphasize we don't want to do screening and slow the process down. This is a dual mission. So what we want to do is we want to confirm the goodness and the validity of almost everybody applying for aid right now. We want to confirm it. We want to confirm it very, very quickly, get money out the door because people desperately need the money. And then we want to identify that very, very small percentage of folks who need a little bit of extra diligence. And we want to um, then slow the process down on them and throw humans at it and, uh, and, and, and engage in more enhanced due diligence. We have about a minute left, but you're, you're approaching this, I think, a little differently than I've heard people describe it before, which is yeah. instead of trying to find where the waste, fraud, and abuse is or trying to identify the people who may be uh, committing it, it's confirming the people who aren't first and making right. that process move as quickly as possible. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there are two things that I, I think are different in what I'm suggesting. First is do the screening up front. Don't rely on the deterrent effect of an audit a year or two or three, or three later. That just absolutely won't work. We'll have 16% or more fraud if we do that. Do the screening up front and go in with the assumption that that people legitimately need this money and need it quickly, and let's get it into their hands first, as quickly as we can, assuming that they're good. And then for those folks where there's where there's a complication and you can't identify the pattern of behavior, um, that makes sense. And we've got, Francis, we've got about a dozen cases now of prosecutions going on under PPP fraud. We know what that pattern looks like. We can start to train train on those patterns and do a great job of identifying upfront people who need a little bit more due diligence. Gary Schiffman, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate it. Up next, the outer limit on a contract for small businesses goes way up straight ahead on Government Matters what it means for the future of government-wide acquisition contracts. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The General Services Administration's Streamlined Technology Application Resource for Services, STARS-2 contract, has a new higher ceiling. GSA raised the contract ceiling $7 billion to meet the need for IT services during the pandemic and to help small businesses. 
Joe Jordan is CEO at Actiparo and former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, welcome. It's good to see you. Is this a big deal that GSA has raised the limit on this contract, or is this just kind of the coin of the realm of what we're dealing with as a result of the pandemic? I think it's a big deal, and I think it's smart. Um, you know, I wish it happened a little bit sooner. I, I know a lot of small businesses were struggling with some uncertainty there for a while after Stars 2 had hit its contract ceiling, you know, about a year and a half earlier than anticipated. But this is great. I mean, it's it's raising the, the ceiling of this contract by $7 billion, which represents almost 50% of the original total value. Um, and so this will help. There are almost 800 small businesses on this vehicle. It's used by 50 different agencies. So for both, this is a big deal and it's a good thing. I applaud GSA for doing it. What's the significance of the fact that, that uh, this contract hit the ceiling a lot sooner than everybody expected? Is it just pandemic stuff or is it just, is it maybe the fact that it's a good vehicle for the agencies to use? They're using it more than they anticipated and that's why we hit the ceiling faster. What, what's kind of behind all of that, Joe? Yeah, I think it's far more the latter than the former. I mean, it's natural right now to view everything through a, a COVID lens, but uh, I think this has far more to do with just uh, agencies finding a successful vehicle, um, being able to, you know, further their hitting of their small business goals uh, by using it. And, and it became, in terms of reaching that contract ceiling, a little bit of a victim of its own success. And, and so, again, you know, you'd love to see with GWAC management some of these, uh, you know, remediations happen earlier, not after it hit the ceiling, but, um, you know, better late than never. And uh, I think for another, you know, the vehicle runs through August, so it gives um, these small businesses a much better runway uh, to serve their federal customers. What do you take away or what should someone take away, whether it's GSA or someone else, from, uh, from what we're seeing here for the next iteration of a contract like this? And, and what should companies think about when they're bidding on the next iteration of something like this? Well, I think, you know, there's a couple things in there. That's a great question. So, um, you know, STARS 3, the next iteration of, of this, this particular vehicle, the RFP, the final RFP is uh, supposed to come out by September 30th. GSA said they're gonna release it, you know, during this fiscal year. So a lot of these questions you just asked will be answered. Uh, but I think there, there are two main things I think about. One, there's long been a discussion when it comes to successful GWACs, government-wide acquisition contracts, that we need to really put thought into on-ramps and off-ramps. As, as new businesses emerge, who government uh, agencies can benefit from their goods and services, we get them onto these vehicles. And when some of the companies on the vehicles either you know, grow too large or no longer fit the uh, criteria to be on the vehicle, we, we figure out ways to off-ramp them. That's been in the the discussion for a while. What hasn't been is what do you do when a vehicle so popular hits its ceiling? That doesn't usually happen. You know, when you look across all the GWACs that have ceilings, um, you know, th this hasn't really happened before. And so I think going forward, part of that discussion, when you think about, uh, you know, how much volume, uh, contract volume should throw this float through this particular vehicle, um, you plan accordingly and you have contingencies if things change. Does it matter if the latter issue isn't addressed? If just when we see an issue like we see with STARS 2, we just increase the ceiling? It strikes me if that's a simple solution and it's a workable solution, is there an unintended consequence there that affects either the agencies that want to use it or the companies that want to sell on it. And if not, maybe that's the solution is just leave it alone and, and do this again if we need to. 
I mean, practically speaking, you're right. That's how I would handle it. And, you know, you come up with some estimate of the volume that's going to flow through the vehicle over the period of performance. And if you underestimated success, great, raise the ceiling. Um, the issue is with ITG wax, um, it's a little bit of Thunderdome out there. As I found out when I dealt with agencies going through strategic sourcing, you've got a lot of, of uh, kind of vehicles with administration costs, administrative costs, vying for that agency buy. And so um, when you signal that it's going to be another limitless, uh, ceilingless vehicle, uh, you're gonna get pushback from some of those other uh, GWAC holders who, who want that volume. Is that a good reason not to do it? No, but that's the reality of what's going on with you know, some of the folks from you know, Soup and the schedule and these other places that would love the volume to go there and not through an 8A Stars 3. Um, less than a minute left, Joe. What's that on-ramp, off-ramp mechanism look like, do you think, that's, that would be most effective? We haven't figured it out yet, Francis, uh, to be honest, but I think of more consistent review of people uh, in the marketplace, companies in the marketplace. Um, so it's not, hey, if you missed your opportunity now, wait five years. Um, and it also means reducing some of the administrative and contractual hurdles to get onto these vehicles, uh, which will also help the really long setup time that I think is unnecessary and counterproductive. So it'd be great to fix that. Joe Jordan, thanks as always, my friend, and congratulations on the first Thunderdome reference in the history of Government Matters. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, NatSec 2020, coronavirus and beyond is coming. You'll learn how COVID-19 is affecting the business of government in the national security community, especially in the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. You can join our free webinar at fedinsider.com or tune in to WJLA 24-7 News the week of July 13th from 1 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's the latest from Washington. You can join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.